Hello and welcome to Real Indigenous, Uvanga Angela Starts, and I have a very special guest with us today. I want to have you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Erica Tremblay and I am the co-writer, producer and director of Fancy Dance. And who was your co-writer? Uh, my co-writer is Michiana Elise. You're from Oklahoma originally or from this area, right? Yeah, so I was born in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and I spent um, a bit of my childhood there. And then we moved up to northeastern Oklahoma slash southwest Missouri. I'm Seneca Cuga, and so our nation is kind of on the very corner of northeastern Oklahoma, um, bordering Missouri. And I read somewhere that you started learning your language at a certain point. Can you tell me about how that win about because I've been trying to learn my language it's so hard it is very hard yes um, yeah you know we lost our last um, fluent speaker in my community in 1989 so I didn't grow up with the language um, really around me much other than like rote memorized speeches um, that I would hear from time to time but yeah I was just kind of feeling a bit unsatisfied with my career and I was thinking like I was working in advertising and publishing and I was like oh like I just hate going to work every day what what am I gonna do and so I started researching to go back to school and I was looking at like different MFA and PhD programs and like indigenous studies and those sorts of things but I would always like look at the faculty and be like well why am I gonna go learn from like a bunch of like non-native people um, about my my community and other indigenous communities. So just on a late night search, I saw this um, small native ran university in Ontario, Canada, that was offering a uh, three year long language immersion program in Cayuga. And it was just one of those aha moments where like late at night, I was like, this is it. And so like I couldn't sleep. I waited until like 9 a.m. and they their office opened and I called them up and I was like, hi, uh, you know, I'm Ongoy Holloway, I'm from Oklahoma, like, you know, can I, how can I be a part of this program? And so I embarked on a three-year-long language immersion program um, up in Six Nations in um, Gaiokono, Kiyuga. Now, are those your ancestral lands? Um, we were kind of, I live on my ancestral lands now, actually, in upstate New York. Um, I live on Kiyuga Lake. And there was kind of, a, you know, a similar diaspora happening uh, with a lot of people in Native communities around the Revolutionary War. But post-Revolutionary War, there was a group that ended up going up to Canada, a group that stayed. And then we had fled to Ohio and um, were there for 80 years until Jackson decided to march us down to Oklahoma. So i am just been so lucky to now have lived in three um, Haudenosaunee. Uh, lands and it's it's really a special uh, thing for me to get to live on on Cayuga lands in upstate New York but still come home to Oklahoma where you know my community that I grew up in is and to get to have multiple homes. So the first time I went back to our ancestral lands I just you know you feel that feeling I mean did you have that when you went back? Oh 100% in fact you know growing up in Oklahoma and hearing some of our speeches and hearing just some of our um, teachings sometimes they didn't always make sense like you know we have deer here in Oklahoma and you know we believe that like deer is the 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 leader of the animal and that like like the first strawberry that wild strawberry that pops up is like the leader of the of the plants and I always listened to stories like that and just was like okay like you know what you know just a story and then you know my first spring um living on Ongoy Hawaii lands in in upstate New York I was like oh 
this makes so much sense why there's like 50 different ways to say water because there is water everywhere. There are deer everywhere. There are wild strawberry. And so there was just this like really like interesting sense of um, homecoming that there were these things that I had known my whole life, but then I actually got to like understand them and like learn them in new ways and tactile ways. So have you been able to use any of that gained knowledge, regained knowledge in your work? Oh, 100%. You know, um, when I was developing um, Fancy Dance, I was in the program at Six Nations Polytechnic, and I was, you know, studying Gaiokono for eight hours a day with my language cohort, and then I would work at night to develop the project, um, writing it and packaging it. And um, I was inspired by the language and kind of the new understanding that I was having around my ancestors' worldviews. I mean, I, we, we live in this, this world that is just so steeped in misogyny, so steeped in white supremacy. And as we were learning the language, I started to see these like beautiful, I guess, I'm trying to figure out a way to put it into words. I was seeing this like beautiful view into a different way of living where you could see that at one point those those things didn't ex, you know exist and and just seeing how the language was set up how the syntax and the grammar and all of that was was really geared around um communal living geared around verb based nouns where everything is in motion everything is in connection and 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 working with each other in in the world and and that just opened my eyes and opened my heart to a whole new understanding of not only myself and my my community, but also um, my storytelling. And I 100% was applying those explorations in in the projects that I was working on at the time, and 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 continue to do. And and also, you know, I come from a long line of teachers, but I would be a horrible teacher. <laughs> um, and so a lot of the people who were in my cohort you know, have gone on to teach and, and I was like, well, that might not be how I can put back into language revitalization, but I can make movies and I do make media. And so for me, it has been really important to incorporate um, Gaia Kono into my project so that we can see it, hear it, watch it, you know, especially in fancy dance. It's in a modern setting where young people are speaking the language fluently, which is currently, unfortunately, not the case. But kind of imagining that as a reality and, and showing it on the screen, I hope, will inspire more people to want to learn about their languages and, and hopefully we can get young people excited about it. It's truly been one of the like big milestones in my life in terms of um, not only being inspired, but um, finding some hope and joy to cling to. I mean, in my language class, my final project was like media training for the high schoolers that were in there so that they would recognize how we're portrayed, how our stories can be portrayed, and why they should care. Yeah, 100%. And I think like that's across the board and in, in, in all aspects of, of our lives as indigenous people. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, currently I'm a, I'm a member of the Writers Guild of America and currently we're on strike. And a lot of people have asked me, you know, like, well, what's at stake for something like this? And I'm like, well, when we talk about like 
authentic storytelling, like sometimes you hear all of these buzzwords, right? And people just like throw around diversity or throw around uh, inclusivity and, and, and all of this. But really at the core of it is we are meant to be telling our stories and we are responsible for telling our stories. And those who hold access to, you know, power and resources their responsibility is to allow us to tell our stories. And it's funny because you think about, you know, this conversation around AI and, and, and one of the big negotiation points with the WGA and the big companies. And it's like, AI can never tell these stories, not only because they aren't grounded in that experience, but it's, it, these are our stories to tell and they're ours to protect. And there's a, lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of responsibility that goes along with that and a lot of thinking about what your role is, making sure that you're checking in with community, making sure that your elders under, like, are, are on board and if they have suggestions that you sit and you listen. And um, it is a, it's a large responsibility to take on, but it's also important that we are embarking on this work because... We have, to, we have to share our knowledge and our, our love and our, our creativity with each other. So recently we've seen a big boom in us telling our own stories. And do you see that once the writer's strike is finished, do you see that continuing? You know, I try to be an optimistic person, but <clears throat> I, I continue to always kind of like come back to my pessimistic side. And I... I think it's really hard to sustain the work that we're all trying to do when the system is rooted in capitalism. And when the dollar is the bottom line, it makes it extremely difficult for the people who hold the resources to take risks. And, you know, I was recently having a conversation with with a friend of mine who is like, you know, so into films and studies them. And I was like, how many feature narrative films have been made since Smoke Signals? And we were sitting there and we were like, maybe 20, maybe. And, you know, you, you know, I owe a lot to, to folks like Sterling Harjo and Sydney Freeland and Black Horse Low who were like out there and they were like finding ways and they were like pushing through and like making incredible films but there aren't a lot of them. And that's because access to resources has been guarded and has been like kept from us. And so I'm optimistic to see that, that folks like Sterling and Sydney and, and every, you know, all of my, my mentors and my peers are kind of like in an era where we have access to some resources. It's like better than it was before, but I'm not sure how much you can applaud um, these decision makers for like doing still less than the bare minimum. And, you know, there are so many other storytellers that are out there that are like waiting for access to resources. And so I feel extremely lucky and I have so much gratitude for the position that I currently am in where I've been able to make a living wage and work in my, in my art. And, but I, I still, I still come up against that brick wall time in and time out. And I think it's until we find ways to dismantle the, f the fundamental <laughs> way that film and television is made, we're going to struggle 
as Angwe people to tell our stories um, in the ways that we would want to tell them. The thing that's really impressed me, talking to Sierra, talking to Vera, and they're all like, you know, we want to kick the door. We've been kicking the door open. We want to hold it open for the next generation. I think that that goes back to our, the way we think of the world and planning for the next seven generations and bringing them along with us. And I, it makes me happy. But then Rutherford Falls gets canceled. Alaska Daily gets canceled. And then, you know, and then we lose some of the strongest, most interesting female indigenous characters on television. And it makes me so sad. <laughs> it is sad. I mean, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, really. And, um, and you, you want to be like, why? But you're not ever going to get a straight answer. And you're not ever going to, even if they gave you the answer, you're not going to understand it or agree with probably the reasons that these executives choose to make these decisions. And I think that it's just going to take, you know, unfortunately, it's just going to take more pressing and more pushing. I think that in the end, though, audiences, um, native and non-native audiences alike under like they want the truth and they want to watch authentic storytelling and they they can smell a lie from you know a million miles away and so at some level i think we will always find ways to break through but at what cost and you know i can just say that i'm so grateful to those mentors that have come before that that do hold the door open and it's not like that in in Hollywood like I will be the first to say that like in most instances people get to a place of access and just hold that door shut because they're so afraid but that's not the way it seems to be in in all of the indigenous spaces that I have had the opportunity of working in in Hollywood like there does really seem to be a sincere wish and hope that we all succeed and we understand that like we don't want to go another 35 40 years with like 20 movies made 20 narratives made and and i think like when one of us is succeeding then we're all trying to find ways to use that momentum to push everyone else else's projects forward and so um you know i'm just a very small point in this wave that's happening um, and I just hope that what I'm doing in some way can also be propping the door open for other, you know, Ongwe Homeway filmmakers, Oklahoma filmmakers, and, and, you know, queer indigenous filmmakers. Can we talk about your process a little bit? We'll just shift a little bit and talk about your process. And so you came up through advertising? Yeah, so I kind of always wanted to be a filmmaker, even though I'm not sure that I knew it was actually a job. I remember being... In my early 20s, I think, when I saw a film called High Art by Lisa Chalodenko, and it was like, I saw a woman's name after directed by, which was like, and then this was in my like 20s, the first time I saw that. And so it's hard to even like explain what it's like to want to do something, but truly not thinking that that's even an option for you. And so I remember seeing those credits and being like, whoa, like, that actually is something that this person did. Like, maybe I could do that. And so, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to a state school. And I went there, but they didn't have, like, a film school program. Like, I didn't have access to anything like that. And um, But after college, I moved out to L.A., you know, and, and I was working as an assistant on some things. And I worked as a PA. And, like, it was sustainable for just a 
few, a couple years really before I was like, oh, I actually need health insurance. Like I need like to be able to like grow up. And so I got a job in advertising and I built a career over advertising for many years. And then I worked um, in publishing. I, I helped run the video department at the Hearst Corporation and at Bustle. And um, I was learning very valuable lessons while I was working in those spaces, but I still was very unfulfilled. I felt like, um, you know, living in these large cities away from community and I would I would come home and I would be with, with my family. And, and but it, it, it wasn't it wasn't fulfilling me enough. And so that's when I, I found the, the immersion program and really decided I was going to invest in community, invest in my, and by investing in community, I was investing in myself, you know, started writing. I wrote a short film um, and directed a short film that was shot here in Oklahoma with Lily Gladstone called Little Chief. That got some in like attention and I was able to get representation. I got an agent and I got a manager. And then, you know, I embarked on, on putting, um, fancy dance together, you know, with my co-writer and producers. And I'm kind of glad I went and lived some life and learned a few things. Um, and yeah, I mean, my process is largely based around endings. I see those first and find my way there. And, um, hopefully rooted in, some sort of like, you know, human interactions and human relationships and, and finding the small ways that we're able to like celebrate our existences here with each other, <laughs> despite oppressive systems <laughs> bearing down on us. Well, and I, I was actually at the First Americans Museum the night that you all were shooting there. And, you know, the whole evening opened with ceremony. And I, I mean, I've been on, I don't know how many sets and stuff, and I was just sitting there going, wow, this feels right. This feels amazing. This, like the whole community was there and it just brought us together. And I mean, I don't, I don't even know how long we ran because I got to see all my, my friends that I see at powwows and we were all just hanging out and getting caught up and hugging each other. and. It was just such an amazing experience. And, you know, how important was it to you to, to do that kind of evening for everyone? Yeah, I, I think it was so important. And especially, like, when we, we had such a large set piece and a, uh, this, like, huge moment that happens at this powwow. We were such a small, low-budget film. It's, like, really hard to pull something like that off, especially in the middle of COVID and, and all of that. And so I remember just talking with the producers and being like, you know, will we bring these people in to do this? Like they're doing a service for us. And this is their generosity that is like bringing um, their talent and their energy and their spirit to our film. And so it was one night we had to shoot this overnight, as you know, and we were shooting with a minor. So we only have, we still were further limited by the amount of hours that we can, that we can shoot. And I knew we needed to open the night with a way for us to all bring our minds together, which is what we do in any Haudenosaunee gathering is we all set our intentions together. And there was, you know, a little bit of conversation around, well, you're going to spend 30 minutes doing that when we have like this. And I was like, it's going to set the tone for the night. And we're expecting these people to stay with us till 6 a.m. 
And we want everyone to feel involved and we want everyone to understand the intention and the love that has gone into bringing this night together and this film together. And it was totally the right thing to do. And, you know, we tried to to bring that intention to other aspects of the film. You know, on the first day of shooting, I had worked with our our language consultant and, um, you know, elders to put together um, set calls. So everyone had a lanyard that had like action and sound speeds and cut and moving on. And those had all been translated into Gaiokono. And by the second day, no one was looking down at their lanyards and everyone was doing all of the set calls in Kyuga. And um, you know, even to this day, like a few, you know, a couple months ago, I got a text message from our assistant director who was like working overnight in LA on a soundstage and was like, I just yelled Satrice. Uh, you know, it's like three in the morning and everyone turned to me and was like, what is she saying? And I was like, tell him what it means um, and and just keep using it. And so, you know, in, in any ways that we can bring the culture alive and bring, you know, a a different kind of way of making film making together is like it's a it's a goal for me. And, you know, as a Haudenosaunee woman, everything that we do is so consensus based and it is so collaborative and filmmaking is the opposite of that. It is such a hierarchical structure where you have people at the top and then it goes all the way down terms like below the line, like these very like violent terms that we use in this job that we do. And for me, it's, it, it is a, you know, I, I can't say that I get it right all the time and I'm still, I still struggle and I'm still learning, but I try to be as aware of of those things in, in an attempt to dismantle as much of that as possible in this quest to make film and television. So it means a lot to me to hear you say that because that very much was what we were we were trying to do, you know, with the opening of that night. Now, again, to jump topics, were you at the screening of Black Barbie last night? I was, and I just loved it. Yeah. Loved it. So... But, but what's interesting is that I was watching Black Barbie and enjoying it because it's amazing. And I noticed that when they were visiting with the children, no spoilers, that they all mentioned white, black, Asian, Hispanic. And I, I sat there and I thought, I wonder what's missing. <laughs> you know, I think it's a conversation that we have with ourselves all the time and what was it recently where they they just put like they listed all of it I think it was like during like I can't remember if it was during like the election or something like that where it was like listing all of these different groups and then other and we're the other and there was actually one image of uh I guess you would call it a Native American Barbie that had like the headdress that was the only that was the only one and 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 um I mean, highly sexualized, very glamorous with the headdress. And I was just like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, indeed. Um, No, I mean, I just really loved what she did with that film and and the conversation that she was having. And, um, you know, we're I think we're all having these conversations around what our kids are seeing, what's being represented, how we're represented, how we're not represented. You know, there's. There's a lot, and um, I uh, 
I'm so grateful for shows like Reservation Dogs that my nieces and nephew get to watch and they get to have posters hanging in their room and they get to have favorite characters that they can identify with. But what a sad state of affairs that we have so few opportunities for not just our youth, but for our ourselves to see our communities and our cultures represented. And we have to keep pushing our narratives and pushing our stories so that we force the larger conversation to not lump us into an other category. We are not an other category. We are the category. We are the original category on these lands. And um, just the basic lack of understanding and respect for that is pervasive everywhere we go. So, you know, I, I thought a lot about that film and got to meet, meet her last night and was just blown away. But I, you know, and, and I also kind of think about Dead Center and how grateful I am for them choosing her film as the opening night film and then we're the closing night film and how what a wonderful kind of bookend conversation that Dead End is committing to around having conversations around BIPOC, you know, queer female-centered stories that are around legacy and around generational knowledge and around passing on knowledge generationally. And so I'm super grateful that, um, you know, Dead Center brought that, that film here so that I could see it. I know, I know. So to, to close up, we usually, I usually ask our guests a couple of questions. So the first question is, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, gosh. Well, I have had three knee surgeries recently. Oh, no. So I would probably like advise myself to like take better care <laughs> of these old bones. Um, man, it's a hard one because I think I'm just still learning all of these lessons. So maybe this is advice I give to my younger self and my today self. Confidence and um, belief in yourself is so fleeting and so hard to, to hard to hold on to and. I have a really hard time celebrating the success because I'm always so focused on the failures. And I think part of that is not being able to live in the now and not being able to like accept compliments and accept, you know, the the energy, positive energy coming back at me. So I think I would also just be like, you know, work on that. Like f find ways to, to not just believe in yourself in an interview because you have to put up a facade, <laughs> but like really deeply like be proud of yourself and proud of what you do. And our second question is, what are you reading or watching or consuming in some way that's inspiring you right now? That is such a good question because I am watching a lot of trash TV right now. <laughs> I've been like escaping into like true crime, like nightmare, like horrible shows uh, lately just to kind of turn my brain off. But um, I, I, it can be and also can like just make you hate the world. So I want to like <laughs> come up with like a more positive answer to this. I've been, I've been reading a lot of like indigenous YA books with my, with my family. And, um, that's been something that's been really exciting for us to do together. And we just started funeral songs for dying girls. Um, I, by Sh Cherie Demelian, I think I don't want to like say her name incorrectly. Um, but it's just, it's so, her work is so beautiful and so wonderful. And I think that 
I've been inspired recently to uh, engage with my, my nieces and my nephew around reading together, doing art together, writing poetry together. And so that's stuff I've been really inspired by lately. Are they doing it in their language? Some actually, like they've actually like, we've been like picking up new words and like one of their new words is they, they know how to say esconget, which means like, I'll be seeing you. And we've been incorporating words into um, just our daily lives. And, and that's just, and they're so into it. And in fact, my nephew, he just is getting ready to graduate from high school and he is going to uh, SUNY ESF, which is the environmental science and forestry department that has like a lot of like Ongoihoe like professors and thinking of how to use indigenous knowledge systems to like help get us out of this climate change crisis that we're in. And um, he has just been bringing so much to our conversations and to the table around like his, you know, he's definitely way smarter than me now. You know, there's like a point at which these kids become smarter than you and I'm accepting that. Um, and so I, um, they had lived here for, and they recently, a year ago, moved up to the ancestral lands as well. So it's been really wonderful to have, you know, cross generations there in, in, in on Cayuga Lake together as we, um, you know, rematriate our little plots of land in, in the best ways that we can. So it inspires me every day.